Our sermon will be taken from John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheephold for the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger that will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was trying, saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will save and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ross. Uh, pray with me. Father, as we study your word, and as we mere creatures have the audacity to open it and say we can understand it, we realize and confess that any type of pure understanding that comes from it only can come by the mercy of your spirit. And I beg you that you would give us clarity, that you'll give us understanding, and that we may live our lives um, as people that have been infiltrated by this eternal love that you have showed us on that cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, John Calvin, who is one of the fathers of the Reformation, has this one quote. And people like me, who haven't actually read much of Calvin, but want to sound like we have, we quote this a lot. <laughs> um, because it's the first sentence on the first page of his institutes. And it says this. Our wisdom insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God 
and of ourselves. Two, wisdom, as far as it is solid and true, is two parts, knowledge of God and ourselves. Now, those overquoted, this is Calvin's first sentence. So apparently, he has deemed this thought to be a good, important nugget of biblical wisdom. And he's saying a lot of that sentence, but one thing he is saying is this, that you can't know who you truly are. You, 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 you can't know your identity, yourself, until you first know who God is. And that's exactly what our passage today is talking about. It shows us who God is and who you are and says you can't know who you are unless you first identify yourself under him. Now, I know in our postmodern ears, some of us would hear that and say, see, that's a problem with Christianity. It's just so suppressive. It's repressive. Christianity doesn't let people decide for themselves who they are. They don't let people self-generate their own meaning, um, and they kind of make everybody go into this one mold. It's oppressive. Now, I hear you, and even to an extent, I would say I agree that some people have used the Word of God in this oppressive way, and that's unfortunate. But what I hope to show us through this passage is that if we try to find our core identity and ourself and who we are and all those questions independently from God— through ourselves, it will actually cause us harm, and it will cause other people harm. Okay, where do we see all that in this passage? I don't see Jesus saying all that in John chapter 10. Well, if you remember last Sunday, we preached on, or Gray preached on, John chapter 9, where we, we saw the setting of John chapter 10. We saw what was happening around it, before it, the context of it. And if you weren't here, let me recap. In chapter 9, Jesus just got done healing a blind man. Right? And the Pharisees who hated Jesus kicked out this blind man from the synagogue. Why? Well, because this healed blind man wouldn't agree with what the Pharisees were saying. He would not submit to their mold. They forced him to say, Jesus, say that Jesus Christ is a heretic. Say that Jesus Christ is a sinner. And the healed man said, I can't do that. So what did they do? They kicked him out. And if you remember, as mentioned last week, being kicked out of the synagogue isn't like today when you're like disciplined out of a church. No, no, no. It's, it's your whole identity. Everybody in town knows. They, they, it, it becomes who you are. You're the person who got kicked out. They, it's your whole, if you remember, even the, his family didn't want to have anything to do with him. Said, I don't want to speak for him. He can speak for himself. So in other words, in chapter nine, you see a man who has been outcast, who is kicked out to the dust. He was spited by everybody around him, perhaps feeling a bit ashamed and insecure because he just had his whole identity ripped away from him in public. And at this moment, Jesus enters a scene in John chapter 10. He towers over this dejected man and he speaks to him in front of all the ones who humiliate him. And he said this, don't mind that because I know you and you are mine. In other words, Jesus gave a man who just lost his identity a new one. And seeing this is utterly important for us today, that we may truly know who God is and thus who we are in relation to him. And I hope we'll see this is the, this is the only way that you'll have a durable and anchored sense of self that will glorify him and be most loving to others. Three things I want to point out from our passage. 
the self-generated identity that always divides, the Christ-defined identity that invites, the cross-caring shepherd that died. The self-generated identity that always divides, the Christ-defined identity that invites, and the cross-caring shepherd that died. First point, let's get to it. The self-generated identity that always divides. An American philosopher, anthropologist, uh, evolutionist, uh, author, his name's Ernest Becker, he wrote a book in the 1970s, I think, that won a Pulitzer Prize. The book is called The Denial of Death. Now, Ernest Becker is an atheist, he's an evolutionist, and he says this, that man, although they're an animal, man is the only animal that is symbolic, meaning he has a sense of self. They have a need for identity. And he explains it in this way. I think the quote is up here. This is a quote from his book. Man is literally split into two. On one hand, he has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty and yet goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. The lower animals, of course, spare this painful contradiction as they lack a symbolic identity and the self-consciousness that goes with it. They merely act and move reflexively as they are driven by their instincts. If they pause at all, it is only a physical pause. Inside, they are anonymous, and even their faces have no name. Man has a symbolic identity that brings him sharply out of nature. He is a symbolic self, a creature with a name. Now, he, he doesn't go on to scripture to explain why we are splendidly unique and have a towering majesty over animals, the book of Genesis would say, because we are created after God's image, right? But he does get something right in that he saw man has a need for an identity, for a sense of self, for a name that just can't seem to be shaken off. We're always asking us, who am I? What defines me? Well, let me ask you that. How do you answer that question? When someone asks you, what is it that defines you? How, how do you respond? Well, I'll get back to the text, I promise, but let me just go through this first. Depending on your cultural upbringing, you will have different grids of how you answer that question. Eastern communalism would say this. Your identity and who you are is based on your community and what they say. The worth and value of who you are depends on how well you serve your family or your community. And the more you submit to familial authority, the more you submit to the role you have in how you serve the community's benefit, the more affirmed your identity will be, right? Now, Western individualism would say this, no, 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 don't say that. Your core self cannot be determined by others. You must decide for yourself who you are. There's a movie that my two-year-old daughter thinks is the greatest movie that man has ever created. It's called Moana. And if you have a child of that age, or maybe any child, you, you probably have memorized the lyrics of the soundtrack. And there's one song that I think really captures Western individualism well. Moana's grandmother sings this. You are, I won't sing it, so don't worry. <laughs> I'm sparing you of that. You, you are your father's daughter, Stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, some parents know this already. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And if that voice starts to whisper, to follow the farthest star, Moana, 
That voice inside is who you are. Look inward, Western individualism says. Find yourself who you are. Now, I don't know which paradigm you lean more toward. It could be Eastern individualism, it could be Western, I mean, Eastern communalism or um, East Western individualism. But it's very important for us to know that both Eastern communalism and Western individualism, though they look like they're on the opposite end of the spectrum, they actually have the same exact basis of how to define your core identity. And the basis is this. And it's the same basis that the Pharisees use, we will see, in defining their core identity. How so? All of them say Eastern communalism, Western individualism, and the Pharisees, they all say that the meaning of self, of identity, must be self-generated must be self-generated. Let me show you. Eastern communalism says this. If I'm able to please my community, my family, my, my core identity will be affirmed. It'll be valued. In other, ways, in other words, saying this. My core identity is self-generated by my own ability to appease my community. Okay. Western individualism says this. Sure, like Moana's grandma said, listen to your father, but most importantly, dig deep inside. Decide for yourself who you are. That's what matters. As long as you're happy with your way of living based on your own personal determined standards, then you've found yourself. Saying this, my core identity is self-generated by my own ability to appease myself. They're both self-generated. Okay, I see that. But where do we see the Pharisees self-generating their own personal identity? Let me show you from the text. Jesus describes the Pharisees as what? Thieves and robbers. Verse 1, they're thieves and robbers. Verse 8, he says it again. They're thieves and robbers. Verse 10, what does a thief do? Jesus says, they come to kill and destroy. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying, and all that the Pharisees do, all the spiritual stuff that they do, they're really doing it for personal gain. They're doing it for themselves. That's what thieves and robbers do, right? They take from others to themselves. And it all looks really spiritual on the outside, but really deep inside it's very selfish. Then you'll see him continuing to describing them in verse 12 and 13 as hired hands. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for doing religious things for self-gain. And because they're hired hand and they're not actually invested or committed or love the sheep, they only shepherd the sheep as long as what the sheep gives them is is, is worth the risk or the time. And when a wolf comes, they say, this is not worth my time, I'm gone. It's all for themselves. The, the shepherd, the bad shepherd, the thief, the robbers, they're trying to gain from the sheep. But what are the Pharisees trying to gain? Personal praise, personal affirmation, an identity. You see? Paul says the same thing about the Pharisees in Galatians 4.17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, they, they praise you to make much of themselves. Good job. You're able to keep up with my spirituality. Good on you. And if they shut you out, it's also to make much of themselves. You can't keep up with me? Get out of here. You can't keep up with my standards? You're out of the synagogue. But why? Why is the life of the Pharisees so filled up with needing to impress others with their spirituality, with their religiosity? It's because it's what gives them significance. It's what gives them value. That's what gives them identity. You see? 
their identities were self-generated. And they would go so far to protect it. And anyone who threatens it, like the healed blind man, they'll humiliate and kick out. Why? Because their core identity is generated by the self. And if you've generated your own sense of core identity, then it's up to you to protect it. Your strength to maintain it. And whoever you think is a threat to your self-generated sense of self, like the healed blind man was to the Pharisees, you'll kick him out. Why? Because if they take it away from you, you're no one. You're no one. The Pharisees told the blind man in chapter 9, don't follow Jesus because Jesus speaks of salvation by grace and grace alone. And if that's true, the Pharisees would have lost everything because all their religiosity would have amounted to nothing. And the healed blind man says, I can't do that. So they kick them out. See, people who self-generate their core identity based on what they can do or what they have done or their performance or their whatever, they'll always demonize others who threaten it. Let me, let me show you. Many people find their core identity in position of power. Yes? And what, what, what you see happening is that they demonize and kick out anyone who threatens that position of power. You don't need to look far to see this. Just look at the political climate in Jakarta. One would lie, one would steal, one would cheat, one would defame other political parties and leaders from other political parties, and even ruin their lives, as we've seen recently. If only they could protect their own position of power, their name. They're the problem, they chant. Those people from that political party, that leader from that political party, they're the ultimate problem. Another one I've seen, perhaps also relevant to us, people who find their core identity um, as national traditionalists. They would say this, those progressive liberals. Can't, can't stand them. I, and when I was younger, I had, I had more than a few older people in Indonesia tell me this before I went to the U.S. Be, be careful before you go to liberal America. They're the enemy. They're the problem. Did you know that, Americans? Apparently, they're the problem. But hold on, hold on, before we judge them, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who find their core identity as progressive liberals. And they would say this, those traditionalists. Can't stand them. I've heard many people demonize traditional nationalists. They're the ultimate problem. They're the reason we're not progressing. It's them, them, them. The problem's always out there. Now, you may not exactly relate to examples above because perhaps you don't put your core identity in any of the groups I just said earlier, but we do the same, don't we? If you put your core identity in your career, you're going to demonize your business competitors. If your core identity is in the, your church's success, you're going to demonize other churches. If your core identity is an Arsenal fan, you'll hate Chelsea fans, Right? You'll demonize those who threaten it. So if, like the Pharisees, your core self is self-generated, you'll demonize and kick anyone out that threatens it because it's up to you to protect it, you see. Thus, you'll be exclusive and divisive. Ah. But wait a minute, you might be tempted to say. I know the solution to this problem. Here's a solution you might be tempted to think. I can still generate my identity by myself and not be divisive. How? as long as my self-generated identity isn't attached to any particular group. You might think, right? The problem, you might say, 
aren't people who self-generate their identity. That's fine. The problem, you might say, are those people out there who latch their identities onto these groups. That's what makes them divisive. But did you hear what you just said? Be careful. You're still saying, you're still calling other people the problem. You're saying those people who latch their identities into groups, they're the problem. You're back to square one. You see? You can't escape it. You can't simply just shake it off. Even if you've successfully unattached your self-generated identity to any group, that becomes your identity. You're the person who can't be put in a box. And you know what's going to happen? You'll slowly find yourself disappreciating those who you think are in a box. You're back to square one. So what then is the solution? If self-generating my identity will end up making me treat those who threaten it like the Pharisees did the healed blind man, what's the solution? How then do I find my identity in core self? Or as Ernest Becker puts it earlier, my name. Well, our passage says that what you need is someone with utmost power to give it to you. You need somebody with utmost power to give it to you. Let's go back to the passage. Contrast to the thief and robber and hired hand imageries. In verse 3, Jesus speaks of himself as what? As the good shepherd. What did the good shepherd do? Middle of verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. He's named you. He's given you an identity. Not a self-generated one that leads only to division, but a received one that is based not on what you can accomplish, but, what, but on who Jesus is and what he has done. Point number two, the Christ-defined identity that invites. Let's go back to the scene with me of the passage. The healed blind man kicked out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. In other words, his whole identity has just been taken away enters Jesus and says what? Don't mind them. I've given you name. This is who you are now. And to explain to the healed blind man what his new identity is, what does Jesus do? He connects the healed blind man to himself, saying, you're a sheep and I'm your good shepherd. You can't find it independent from me. Your identity is connected to who I am. Now, when you think of the sheep imagery... A lot of us probably get a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And we think about the paintings of, you know, Jesus, uh, long, beautiful, shampooed hair, um, grass, and there's a sunset behind him, and he's carrying a little lamb. And that's you, right? <laughs> and, and he's walking, and he says, oh, what a sweet imagery. But actually, the imagery of the sheep is meant to be insulting, it's meant to be insulting. Why? The original readers of the time would have known because they're more of an agricultural society than we are today. But sheep are the dumbest animals to have ever roamed the planet Earth. They're dumb. In 2005, a BBC News reported, BBC News, I'm not making this up, that in Turkey, check it out, 1,500 sheep jumped off a cliff. 400 of them died. And what's even more funny is that some people threw in comments and they're like psychoanalyzing it. They're like, this is the first animal mass suicide we've ever experienced. And, <laughs> and it's like, they just make it this whole like mass animal suicide, like psychological thing. And someone commented and they're like, no, it's not. <laughs> 
we own a farm. My dad's a rancher. Here's the explanation. Sheep are just dumb. And one day he explained, got, told a story about how a sheep came out of the, um, the barn and all the other sheep followed him. And his dad was chasing them around. And one of the sheep just fell off a 12-foot cliff and the others just went, just kind of followed him. They're just dumb. They don't know where to go. And there's so many of this. If I want more laugh, there's so many other more stories about sheep I can share. But they're dumb. Now, why would Jesus say this to a man who just had his identity ripped away? He wasn't trying to insult somebody that was already beaten down, but he's saying you have a new identity now. But it's not one that you can earn yourself. It can't be self-generated. You can't do it. You're sheep. You're weak. You can't find it on your own. You must be led to it. I, the good shepherd, must bring you there. How? In verse 4, by my voice, by my word, the Bible. Those who are mine will recognize my word and they'll follow it. Follow it where? To the door, Jesus says in verse 7. Who is that door? He explains, I am the door of the sheep. You'll follow his word, follow the good shepherd to himself. And you know what Jesus is saying? Here's what he's saying. By using the sheep and good shepherd analogy, by using this imagery of total helplessness, he's telling us, you have a problem. I agree. Yes, there is a problem, but it's not out there. It's not them. It's you. You're completely blind and helpless without me. You can't know your purpose left or right without me. You can't create your own identity without me. Remember earlier we said those who self-generate their core identity are reliant upon their own strength to kind of protect it. And they'll always demonize and kick out everybody who threatens it, like the Pharisees kicked out the healed blind man, like national traditionalists would, the liberals, and vice versa. Jesus is kind of coming in, destroying all that, and saying, no, they're not the problem. You are. You are. You are your own biggest enemies. In other words, while the man with a self-generated identity says, the problem is out there, the Christian shouts, the problem is me. Now, some would say, stick with me here, but doesn't that still promote exclusivity? It still sounds exclusive, right? Doesn't that mean that, aren't you separating two? People who find their identity in Christ still then sets themselves apart from those who self-generate their own identity. You're right. Yes, it does. And to make it even more explicit, Jesus himself says it in verse 16. Jesus says he's going to collect his sheep, his other sheep, so that there will be what? One flock under one shepherd. That's exclusive, I agree. And you might say, see, that still makes the Christian exclusive. There's still just one flock. It's still its own group. It's still in a box. Yes, but remember what we mentioned earlier. It's impossible not to be grouped. It's impossible to not be exclusive. Even those who don't want to be grouped or put in a box goes back to square one because the group of people who can't be put in a box becomes their group. And they group themselves against those who are in a box. You see? Just like those who don't want to be exclusive end up being exclusive. And they go back to square one. Why? Because they're excluding people who are exclusive. I'm inclusive. I'm all inclusive. We cannot, we cannot be exclusive. You're excluding people who are exclusive. There's no way around it. it you remember, it's impossible to not be inclusive. 
So the problem, what he's saying is, it's not that you're exclusive or you're grouped up. You're always going to group yourself. You're, it's always going to be exclusive in one way or another. What, what he's saying is, the difference of being uniting or inviting and divisive is not whether or not you're in a box. It's, it's what your group is saying. The difference is what banner unites your group. What is your group chanting? What is the common denominator for your flock? And you know what the flock of Jesus says? You know what their banner says? I'm the problem. I'm ultimately my worst enemy, not you. Imagine a march with people holding that banner. How weirdly inviting would that be? I'm the problem. Me, not you. But that's what Jesus' flock says when we get together. Why do you think we do a confession of sin every Sunday? Why do you do that in our, in our Sunday worship? We're telling the world that's who we are. That's our core identity. This is what unites us. We're all sheep under a good shepherd. We're all redeemed sinners under a gracious Savior. He's named me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And you know what will happen? You know what will happen when... In, when a name like that has been given by a good shepherd to you and it's not self-generated, you'll finally, friends, you'll, we'll finally, me included, we'll finally be able to stop making our lives about protecting our name. Because he's given it to you and no one can take it away. You know how inviting that is to have a group of people with their gloves down? living vulnerably to the world, saying, you may hate me, you may be against me, but I don't need to spend my time and energy protecting my core identity from you because whatever you do, you can't take it away from me. I don't have to spend my life protecting myself from you. I don't have to spend my life proving myself to you, but instead I can spend it loving you. You're no longer thieves and robbers. Now, as we move on to our last point, there's a very important piece of this whole thing that we haven't really talked about. Some of you might be asking, okay, that sounds amazing, that's great, but I'm not really convinced yet. Why? Because in order to even consider opening myself and my hands to this name that Christ offers me, I must first know two things. One, I must know that the name Jesus gives me is better than the name I can ever generate on my own. And two, that the name Jesus gives me will never be taken away. Unless you know those two things, unless you're solidified and assured of those two things, you're never going you're never gonna to have your heart considered and open to it. So let's pray to the Spirit that he uses that uh, in our last point. Point three, the cross-carrying shepherd that died. Let's address the first concern. How can I know that the name Jesus gives me will be better than any other name that I can ever generate on my own? This whole time, we've been a bit unclear about it. Uh, so we've seen the good shepherd, we've seen the sheep, we've seen the bad shepherd. But what we haven't talked about is what makes the good shepherd different than the bad shepherd. What, what makes Jesus the good shepherd? Well, let's take a look. If you read closely throughout our passage, you'll see Jesus explaining why he's the good shepherd. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life for the sheep. He's he, he, he dies for the sheep. End of verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, 
I lay down my life, and I take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, friends, the cross. He's saying that the way he shepherds us is by laying down his life for us and dying for us on the cross. This is how he will protect his sheep. This is how he will take the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins upon ourselves unto his shoulders. That's his protection. And this is where his voice leads to. This is the door he was talking about. You can't have life. You can't enter into God's eternal pasture and rest through any other way. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets the Father but through me. In other words, this is the name he's offering you. This is your name in Christ. You are the one whom Jesus died for. Well, you might say still, don't get me wrong, that's great and all, Tez. But people die for others all the time. Any decent parent would be willing to die for their children. Any truly loving family member would do that. Even friends, perhaps, for somebody else. That's a good friend of theirs. So why is Jesus' death so significant? Because he's not just anyone. He is God. Where, God, where do we see that? Well, in our call to worship, we read a passage um, of, in, on Ezekiel 34 in the Old Testament. We read a part of it. Let me read the rest of that passage, okay? And after I'm done reading this passage, you tell me who the Bible claims Jesus to be. Ezekiel 34, verse 11 to 12, and parts of 14, 15, and 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his own flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Who just described himself as the good shepherd in Ezekiel 34? The Lord God did. Yahweh did. Who describes himself as the good shepherd in John 10? Jesus did. So then, who is Jesus? Who died on the cross for you, Christian? God did. Do you hear what this passage is saying about who you are? Do you know what your name is? You're the one that God bled for. That's your name. Dare you tell me you can ever self-generate another name more splendid than that? Second, you may ask, will this name ever be taken away? No, it won't. How do we know that? If you look at the verse where Jesus says, he lays down his life for a sheep. You'll notice one emphasis. Let's go back through them again. Verse 15, I lay down my sheep for my sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my wife. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This means what happened on the cross was Jesus's was God's own will. The Romans didn't overpower him unto the cross. The Pharisees didn't outsmart him unto the cross. This was his sovereign eternal plan his decision. He decided to come down as flesh. He decided to climb on that cross for you. Not persuaded, 
influenced, manipulated by anything or anyone. Not even by your own religiosity. Not even by your own morality. You think he died for you? You think he died for us because we impressed him with our lives? No. Romans 5.8 is clear. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. This is not in my notes, but a minister once said, um, he shared the story. He said, husbands, um, your wives may one day ask you this question. Honey, why do you love me? And he said, he said, not me. He said, if you're stupid, you'll say this. I love you because you have a good sense of humor, uh, because you're independent and you have your own career. You're not dependent on me. Um, or because, you know, because oh, you want a family, you want to be home, whatever, and, or because whatever, and you'll say X, Y, and Z, that's why you love him. And he said, not me. If your wife isn't that smart, she'll believe that. And you know what will happen? There's this deep underlying question that is not addressed, but the question is, well, what if I stop working? What if I stop being an independent woman financially and independent on you? Will you still love me then? I love you because you're athletic. We can play tennis together or whatever. Well, what if I become less athletic? What happens then? See, what, what they really want to hear, men, is this. I love you because I love you because I love you. This blind man wasn't leading a Bible study when Jesus came to him. He wasn't organizing church events when Jesus came to him. He wasn't a major donor at his local church when Jesus came to him. He was sitting there, a blind beggar, completely helpless, nothing on his life to show for. That's when Jesus came and said, I have decided to lay my life down for you, and you will be the recipient of that sacrifice. While you were yet sinners, I came for you. So think about it. If his decision to die for you was never influenced by your own good works in the first place, why on earth would you think that his decision to let you keep it is dependent upon it? I've said this for the past three Sundays now, and I think I'll continue to say it until I get bored of it, and I hope I never do. But you cannot lose what you never earned And I'll keep saying that until that truth gets drilled into the depths of our soul because that's the only banner that will make us truly worship God. Your name, the one whom God bled and died for. There's no other name more splendid and no other name more durable. It shall never be removed. And you know the kind of things you'll start experiencing? The kind of things that will happen in your life? When, when you've received the name he's offered for you on that cross, based on him and what he's done and his identity, a few things, but let's just mention three. One, it'll truly give you a durable sense of self. It'll be durable. If you haven't noticed, in life, we lose things. We lose business. We lose relationships. We lose boyfriends and girlfriends we once dated. We lose money. We lose social image. But through it all, you will not lose yourself in Christ because who you are has been determined by the will of an almighty and eternally sovereign God. A durable sense of self, one. Two, you'll finally be able to start loving others. Let me give you one example. Parents, if we make our children's well-being 
as the center of our joy, if their success is the ultimate determining factor of who you are, you know what you'll do? You're going to look like you're loving them on the outside. You're going to look like you're pampering them and doing what's best for them on the outside, but that's not true love. Because their well-being will just be a stepping stone for you to feel like an accomplished parent. You see? It'll be a way for you to validate yourself, to find a name for yourself. That's not true love. And you know what you'll do? You'll crush them. You'll crush them. They can't handle that weight. And that goes for every relationship. Kids, spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, members, elders. The only way to protect your loved ones from this crushing expectation and weight we so often put on them because our name and our value and identity is dependent on them and how they treat us and their success or whatever is first to anchor your identity in the name that Christ has given you. So that now you can do those things because you truly love them. Not because you need them to affirm your sense of self. Third, lastly, you'll become more obedient to God. Some people say if this mercy and this grace is so free, right, then it'll make me lazy. No, it won't. How so? If you have an everlasting identity that's unshakable in Christ, you'll finally be able to stop using your work and your career as a way to validate yourself. We all do that. Who here secretly compares their career with other people that are of their same age? Huh? Huh? He's 30, I'm 29. Uh, it's tiring, right? You can finally stop all that. Be done with it. Use your work instead to glorify God, not as a tool to raise somebody. Your service at church can finally stop being about making a name for yourself, but truly for Him. Your money, your whole life will be... St- will stop being about making a name for yourself, but for the glory of him who died for you. But before any of these things can happen, you've got to first be named by him with a name that is more splendid than anything else you can ever muster up on your own and more secure because God himself gave it to you. So let's end here. Ironically, the passage ends with two camps. After Jesus said all this, verse 19, he, uh, John says, there was again division among the Jews. Jesus Proclaim, he's a good shepherd. You can only come to God through me. There's a split in the Jews. One group in verse 20 said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? They didn't believe. But the second group, verse 21, those are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open up the eyes of the blind? Here's the thing. John, the author, he kind of left, left the narrative hanging there, okay, with a bit of tension. Because neither groups neither groups actually confessed that they believe what Jesus said is true. Neither groups actually explicitly identified with Jesus. Neither one said, ah, he is truly the good shepherd, the Messiah, God who has come in flesh. None of them said that. The first group said he's a demon. The second group was a bit better, but they said, is he? That's all. That's all they said. But no one actually confessed he is Lord and Savior. Why? To leave it to you, the reader with this tension, with this question. What say you? Who is he to you? Who do you identify with? What flock are you under? What say you? Will you come to him? Will you be named by him? Will you be identified 
with him or will you go on life trying to find eternal salvation and life in your own good works, in your own morality, in your own person? Will you go on life self-generating your own name only to hurt yourself and others in the process? Who do you say he is? Let's pray. Father, what a name now we have, a child of God, that allows us now to even begin this prayer with the name Father. You, Yahweh, God of God, eternal, majesty, splendid, glorious, transcendent, you have proclaimed that you will seek out your sheep. And now comes Jesus, God in flesh, who said, I am the good shepherd, and I will protect you, not by a stick to shoo away threats out there. You don't need a stick. You need a cross. Because the problem isn't out there. The problem is you. But I will die for you. I will seek you even when all you wanted your whole life is to worship other things and to make a name for yourself. I love you so much. I will not let my love for you be dependent upon you, but my sovereign will. I will lay down my life. No one takes it away from me. And thus, you said just a few chapters before, those who come to you, you will never cast away. What an amazing truth. What an amazing security that we have our names graven in your heart. Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, let this word speak deeply in our hearts. And as we song, sing in response to this last song, let it lead us back to you.